All right, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here. This is the Restoration Hour here on Eurofolk Radio. Today is April 9th, 2022. And today the main topic is going to be the uh, amazing find at uh, Mount Ebal in Palestine, which with a, uh, a little lead tablet containing the name of Yahweh twice in Proto-Hebrew, not Paleo-Hebrew, but Proto-Hebrew, according to the archaeologists involved in the find. They make a distinction between Proto-Hebrew, which they say was even earlier than Paleo-Hebrew, but it, it proves conclusively, and we have on the front page of Your Folk Radio, we have a, uh, a video on that subject, a press conference by the archaeological team describing the find and its significance. And the significance is that the, it's absolute proof that the Israelites were familiar with the name of Yahweh and had artifacts on which they could inscribe their Hebrew language, which was just a little bit beyond stick figures which also explains why the Israelites who were in America around 1000 B.C. and even earlier used stick figures. And there was a find here in Illinois that had uh, the name of Yahweh inscribed between the right hand of the Father and the left hand of the Father, which that, that, uh, that inscription refers to the left hand as Lucifer, <laughs> And to the right hand as Jesus or Yeshua. So I guess at the Council of Nicaea, the theologians decided, well, no, you can't have Yahweh being the father of Lucifer. <laughs> so they changed it from Lucifer to the devil. Well, who created the devil? I mean, he created beings with free will. And the Bible clearly says that one of those beings, which refers to Lucifer, whether that's his real name or not, doesn't matter. Well, but he had the free will to choose to rebel against Yahweh's law. And that's what happened. So whether it's Lucifer or devil doesn't really mean much. But the uh, Council of Nicaea saw fit to change the language. Okay, So that, therefore it's been the devil ever since. Instead of what the Bible says. Uh, and uh, Lucifer is uh, one of those transliterations of a Hebrew word that uh, you know, basically means halal, the uh, lord of the, the underworld. Okay, halal, a, a, a spirit, an evil spirit is what it's referring to. So, uh, you know, we'll get into that uh, as we uh, get, get into the articles today. But I have several, several announcements. First of all, uh, Paul English has started another radio network. He calls it Free Speech Radio. Dot com, freespeechradio.com, and uh, it's, uh, I think it's 24-7, just like your folk radio, and uh, he's got a lineup of primarily patriotic broadcasts, probably from all over the world, and he sent me some of the uh, shows that he's got on, and it's really good stuff. He's got a, a talented selection of broadcasters, and again, it's called Free Speech Radio, so I encourage you all to go there and check it out. And uh, Paul is the one who designed Eurofolk Radio, and uh, I'm the one who 
tries to make it work. <laughs> but uh, so he's he's very busy uh, activating free speech all over the world. And so kudos, uh, Paul. Good job. Absolutely great job. Free speech radio. And uh, you know we can't wait to, uh, well, he's already uh, simulcast some of our shows on free speech radio. And we'll probably do the same, uh, simulcasting his as well. So that's Paul English's new free speech radio project. I encourage you all to go over there, uh, freespeechradio.com. Uh, and let me just make sure I got this uh, name correct, because I don't want to mislead anybody. And it's a very new project. I think it just came out this week. Yeah, uh, okay, it's, sorry, it's Speak Free Radio. Speakfreeradio.com, Speak Free Nation Station. Okay, speakfreeradio.com, and it went on the air on April 1st, okay? Speak Free Radio, it's a good thing I ch double-checked that. All right, thank you, Paul, good work. So, uh, another announcement here, I've got several. Uh, first of all, Brother Bear's calendar is available. Uh, you can go to the main page at Your Folk Radio and click the Donate button for the address, but I'll just give you the address verbally for those who can't go there physically. And it's $20 or more if you want to add more donation money for his 2022 solar Hebrew calendar based on the teachings of Enoch. And uh, many people have uh, followed the teachings of Enoch in terms of determining the calendar. And uh, in, f in fact, there's more and more people that I'm uh, hearing and uh, got videos of uh, following the Enoch calendar like we do. So uh, that's uh, that's a really fascinating subject. And that calendar is available, like I said, for a donation of $20 or more, if you care to add more to, to it, uh, from ANP, which stands for American National Publishing, 900 Commerce Place, number 1016, Forsyth, Illinois, 62535. Now, in addition to that, we are now handling Bruce McCarthy's book, which is entitled, and I've got a physical copy here, and we're planning on airing Bruce McCarthy's show, Datum Line, which was on Republic Broadcasting Network for several years. And he was the act that preceded uh, Pastor Greg and I, when we were on RBN, we had the, did the Voice of Christian Israel on Sunday mornings, RBN, and Bruce McCarthy's datum line was the one-hour show preceding ours. Ours was a two-hour show. And he wrote a book called Lawful Money versus Legal Plunder, an indictment of criminal fraud and theft perpetrated against the non-bank public by the International Banking Cartel. That title will tell you a lot. And I'm just going to flip through here, and I'm, I'm landing on page 38, where he says, Behold, the iniquitous mystery is solved on the very next page by one of the public relations staff writers of the Federal Reserve Bank. The actual process of money creation takes place in commercial banks. Banks can build up deposits by increasing loans and investments. This unique attribute of the banking business was discovered several centuries ago. <laughs> Page 3 of This is Modern Money Mechanics, Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Page 3. 
And here is Bruce McCarthy, McCarthy talking. We all know what deposits look like. We've seen them steaming out behind the barn early in the morning. <laughs> if a farmer loaned you some of his deposit, the pile would decrease. When bankers lend some of their deposits, they increase. To avoid prison, they purchase protection from their partner in crime, government. How much would you have paid for a federal license to steal? And there's another quotation here. The authority to create money is an important power for any organized government to possess, and Congress has delegated that power to the Federal Reserve. From putting it simply, the Federal Reserve, FRB of Boston, okay, and this is page 15. One more quote. At one time, bankers were merely middlemen. They made a profit by accepting gold and coins for safekeeping and lending them to borrowers. But they soon found that the receipts they issued to depositors were being used as a means of payment. These receipts were acceptable as money since whoever held them could go to the banker and exchange them for metallic money. Again, from Modern Money Mechanics, pages 3 and 4. And it continues, Today's Federal Reserve notes evolved from warehouse receipts for gold and silver coins deposited in not-so-trusty bank vaults. So if I deposited my money with you and didn't bother to retrieve it, what would you eventually do? Oh, come on, fess up, right? Would you become a banker? <laughs> would, you, would you act like a banker? And let me do one more quote here. This, this book is loaded with quotes from the evildoers themselves. Then, bankers discovered, they're big on discovering, that they could make loans merely by giving borrowers their promises to pay, that is, banknotes. In this way, banks began to create money. More notes, IOUs, could be issued than the golden coin on hand because only a portion of the notes outstanding would be presented for payment at any one time. Again, Ibid, page 4, <laughs> Modern Money Mechanics. Okay, so he extensively quotes the money masters and explains how the fraud is perpetrated upon the general public. Uh, and, he, of course, he, he quotes, equates the business of banking with communism, total takeover of the government by banksters. So uh, I highly recommend you get this book. We have it for $25. It costs us $20 to keep it in stock. And so for a mere $5 for a postage and handling, we can send you a copy of this book. It's a, it's a five and a half by eight, eight and a half, five and a half by nine, six by ten, something like that, uh, by Bruce G. McCarthy. And so when requesting this book, just write down on the check on the note line McCarthy, and uh, we'll, we'll send you a copy of this book. All right, it's an absolute treasure. Bruce McCarthy is probably the highest ranking economist and from a biblical point of view of anybody in the world. Definitely, uh, he's got a biblical perspective on what real money is and how the fraudsters go about their business. So uh, again, the title of the book is Lawful Money versus Legal Plunder, an Indictment of the Banking Business. Okay, uh, next we have, uh, I just want to give a quick update on the Gina Aversano case. Uh, she's one of the prisoners that I've been dealing with, and she was arrested in Manhattan or Long Island, I forget which it was, 
for sticking an anti-homosexual sticker on a rock in a park dedicated for gays and lesbians. Okay, so they had her on a video putting this uh, note on this rock. And so she got arrested and she's been in, well, under house arrest now for quite some time. And I've been praying for her because the, the problem is that it's the ADL responsible for this ridiculous law, which is totally opposed to the First Amendment, that you don't have the right to criticize homosexuals in the state of New York or in the city of New York. And so this is a, a totally unconstitutional statute they passed thanks to the ADL. And so they've had her over a barrel, and no lawyer will dare to cross the ADL in court because his is his life or your life will be made, the lawyer's life would be made miserable by the ADL. You'd be disbarred, you'd be called all kinds of names, you'd lose your practice, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so there's no lawyer in America who would be willing to stand up to the ADL in court. And so Gina was just out of luck. So anyway, she called me this week and said, okay, we settled. They're going to give me six, six months to a year of community service, uh, re-education, where I have to, you know, be gay-friendly the rest of my life, right? Of course, she's never going to do that. But this is the settlement, which is probably the best she could possibly do. So I told her, all right, so you got to kiss Jew butt for six months, say thank you, and get the hell out of New York. <laughs> get the hell out of New York when your community service time is up. So that's really actually a good result. It could have been a lot worse. All right, so we're going to get into uh, the subject matter, but first we're going to go into Exodus 13.1, continuing from our discussion from this morning, because it is relevant both to the, the current time. We are in the Feast of Unleavened Bread currently, and I looked up uh, Exodus 13, uh, chapter 13, actually for another reason, because uh, because the, the calendar reckoning, it, uh, actually was hoping to find the date of the, the year that the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, and I saw that Swamp Fox had posted a date from the Bullinger Companion Bible as probably 1444 B.C., I will be reading an article uh, which is very similar to that date. But let's read through Exodus chapter 13 first, because this is highly instructive, and it actually bears on how the calendar comes into being, when it came into being. And Brother Aber and I were talking about why is it that so many calendar enthusiasts start the year on the fourth day after the spring equinox. This, this has occurred, the interpreters of the Dead Sea Scrolls do this, and several others have done this. And uh, Brother Abraham picked up, well, the reason they do that is because in Exodus uh, Genesis chapter 1, the sun doesn't make its appearance until the fourth day. Okay, so they're assuming that all those days in Genesis 1 are literal 24-hour days, which they cannot possibly be. Those are yams, those are eons, those are eras, 
okay? So by falsely assuming that those are literal 24-hour days, and they assume, well, because Yahweh created the universe, that uh, you know, right after the creation of the universe, counting literal days, the sun didn't shine until the fourth day, so therefore the fourth day being Wednesday, according to the interpreters of the Dead Sea Scrolls, is the first Sabbath of the year. However, that's even if that were true, even if those were literal days, the Bible says otherwise. And that's what I'm going to be quoting here. This is about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1. And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. So he's talking about the children belong to him, the firstborn children belong to him. And of course, his firstborn animals would be the ones to be sacrificed on his behalf. Exodus 13.3 And Moses said unto the people, Remember this day in which ye came out from Egypt. That was the spring equinox. That's what it was. It was the spring equinox when they came out of Egypt. The first full day after the spring equinox was the first Sabbath. First Sabbath of the year. And every seventh day afterwards is a Sabbath in that year. So days 1, 8, 15, 22, 29, etc. These are the Sabbaths of the coming year. And this is the pattern given by Enoch in the book of Enoch. And the Jubilees confirms it as well. So, he says, In which ye came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand of Yahweh brought you out from this place. There shall no leavened bread be eaten. This is talking about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, of course, Passover is also to be eaten with unleavened bread, so that's the 14th day. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is from the 15-day Sabbath to the 22nd-day Sabbath. So and that's eight days, and counting Passover, it's nine days in total that we are not to eat leavened bread. Okay? So we are still in this. Today is the uh, third to the last, or second to the last, uh, this starting this evening, second to the last day. And then from Sunday evening tomorrow, that will be the last day of the current Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let's continue. This day came you out in the month of Abib. Abib means green ears of barley. That's what it actually means. And it shall be when Yahweh shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he sware unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt keep this service in this month. Okay, so Exodus 12 was the giving of the law. Exodus 13 says very clearly that you will be start be, uh, when you enter the land of the Canaanites, then will you begin this service, and no sooner. All right. Now most of the commentators reading Exodus 13, they say, okay, well, yeah, uh, th this is the definition of the unleavened bread. But they look over, they overlook this verse, verse five, which says. You will not begin this service. You will not begin observing these calendar feast days. Why? Because they were still wandering around in the desert. And they didn't have any green ears of barley. They were eating manna. 
for almost 40 years with an occasional pheasant. <laughs> now and then, right? And so they did not have a society, a farming society yet, by which they could keep these feast days. So here it says very clearly, Exodus 13, 5. If anybody asks, when does the Hebrew calendar begin? It says it right here. When the Israelites cross the Jordan River and enter the land of Canaan in order to take over that country and take it away from the Canaanites. It says it right here, Exodus 13, 5. Verse 6. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to Yahweh. Okay, that's the uh, end of the, the feast, the 22nd day of the month. Exodus 13, 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee, <laughs> not under your arm, not in your shopping bag, neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. Verse 8. And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. So the, the people, especially the Levitical priests, are supposed to remember all these things for the day when the feasts actually can be practiced in the land of Canaan. Okay, verse 9. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes, that Yahweh's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath Yahweh brought thee out of Egypt. Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in his season from year to year, once you enter the land of Canaan. And it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, as he sware unto thee and to thy fathers, and shall give it to me, or shall give it to thee, rather. Second witness, verse 11 and 12 that thou shalt set apart unto Yahweh all that openeth this matrix, and every firstling that cometh of a beast which thou hast, the male shall be Yahweh's. And every firstling of an ass that shall, thou shalt redeem with a lamb, and if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What is this? that thou shalt say to him, By strength of the hand of Yahweh brought us out from Egypt, from the house of Baal, not the Jews, but our Israelite ancestors. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that Yahweh slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahweh all that openeth the matrix, being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem. And it shall be a token for Upon thine hand and for the frontlets between thine eyes, for by the strength of the hand of Yahweh brought us forth out of Egypt. So the key verse is verse 5, which tells us very specifically when the feast day calendar begins. And I'll repeat it here because it's very important. And it shall be when Yahweh will, shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites, which they had would not do for another 40 years, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which swear unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey, that thou shalt keep this service in this month. Okay? So, for the first 40 years of the Exodus, they were unable to practice the feast day calendar. So, clearly, the idea that the first Sabbath is on a Wednesday makes no sense. 
because that's based on the false pre uh, premise that the calendar starts from the beginning of creation. It does not. Anybody asks, just send it to Exodus 3.13.5. Okay, that's all, that's all the proof you need. All right, so let's continue. And now uh, the subject is going to be uh, very close to that. It's going to be, and I'll see if I can put this in the chat room. What year did the Hebrew nation with Joshua cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land? So I will uh, copy this and put it in the chat room for y'all. Okay, and that's Christianity Stack Exchange questions. What year did the Israelites enter or, or with Joshua Canaan land crossing the Jordan River? Okay, so in terms of our current and modern dating system, what year did Joshua and the Hebrew nation cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan? Also, based on this, what year would the first Jubilee year have occurred, as described in Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 4 and 8 and 9? Answer. Well, actually, they quote. They quote the Leviticus 25 here. When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. I guess this is a second witness that the first Sabbath was practiced when they entered into the land of Canaan. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath unto Yahweh. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard, and you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, which is 49, not 50, folks. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years, not 50. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilees to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound. So, in the 49th year, you will sound the trumpet on the day of atonement, and that begins a ceremonial year, not a literal calendar year, a ceremonial year from the 49th year into year number one of the next Jubilee cycle. That's how it works, okay? So let's see if there's anything else interesting on this site. Okay, uh, okay, four answers. The dates, for, oh, that's right. That's why I uh, researched the site. What's the date? The dates for these events, as with most biblical chronological estimates, are debated. Scholars cited in this answer date the crossing of the Jordan at 1406 B.C., 1260 B.C., or 1451 B.C., which is very close. That's what uh, Bullinger gives. And the first year of Jubilee to be immediately after or sometime soon after those respective dates. Here is a lightly edited elucidation on the method of the calculation of the date of 1406 B.C. from the Pattern of Prophecy, and I'm only going to talk about this one date, 1406. We know this date of 1406 B.C. from a key chronological marker recorded in the Book of Kings. The year Solomon began to build the temple is given both in terms of the exodus from Egypt as well as the year of Solomon's reign, 1 Kings 6.1. 
and it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so that would be the first year of the Exodus. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of Yahweh. Okay, so in the 480th year of the reign uh, of Solomon, okay, I'm sorry, <laughs> after the Exodus, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, continuing, it was established in Thiel's mysterious numbers of the Hebrew kings that the fourth year of Solomon corresponds to 966 B.C., Therefore, the date of the Exodus must be 480 years prior to 966 B.C. or 1446 B.C. Since the crossing of the Jordan took place 40 years later, that dates it to 1406 B.C. So that is one of the ways of reckoning. And in the video that we have up on Eurofolk Radio, uh, the discovery of the, the lead amulet, that talks about the Israelites being at Mount, uh, Mount Gerizim and at Mount Ebal just before crossing over the Jordan River to invade Canaan land. And that's in Numbers, I'm sorry, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. That event was commemorated by the Israelites and they built a fort or a memorial on Mount Ebal and that's where this uh, lead plate was found, referring to that actual event discussed in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. An astounding discovery, so I encourage everybody to go. Now, when you have time, go to the front page of Your Folk Radio and watch that video, okay? So, but here, the commentator on the center Olam, a traditional rabbinic text of chronology, disagrees with that date. He also gives a date of 1268 B.C. Well, you know the Jews are going to be off for the first year of Jubilee because they're trying to hide the historicity of the Bible. The, the Jews don't believe in the Bible. They believe in the Talmud. Okay? So it's not even worth it discussing that. But that, that just gives you an idea of what kind of uh, you know, what dealings we have to, to deal with to get the, the right dates for everything. Okay, so I'm going to go into the uh, breaking news. The ancient Hebrew curse tablet discovered. And this is Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. And let me copy this. Because this is really an important account of what happened at Mount Ebal. And ha which has been now, uh, it's big news all over the internet. Uh, it's been published in hundreds of newspapers around the world. This discovery of this lead amulet containing the name of Yahweh twice in Proto-Hebrew. The authors distinguished between Proto-Hebrew and Paleo-Hebrew, stating that Proto-Hebrew was even earlier than Paleo-Hebrew. And Paleo-Hebrew consists mainly of stick figures. As a Proto-Hebrew has uh, a, some circles in it, but they were discarded 
by Paleo-Hebrew because it's just simpler to carve straight lines on a rock <laughs> with a stylus. Uh, circular uh, inscriptions are, are very hard to make on a rock, okay? So that's probably why Paleo-Hebrew developed. And they go into how Yahweh, it was, it was only three figures at that time, they show the inscription in that video, so I highly encourage you to look at it. And so continuing back with this article, breaking news, ancient Hebrew curse tablet discovered at Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal. And so what happened in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 was the blessings were uttered from Mount Gerizim by Israelites, and the curses were uh, uttered by Israelites on Mount Ebal. So they were across the valley from each other, the Jordan River, somewhere running down in the valley below. And, uh, but both of them on the, the eastern side of the Jordan River. So this is where they pronounce these curses. And the, the word curses appears on this amulet uh, 14 or 15 times. They haven't deciphered the whole thing yet. There are more letters to be discovered, but this has to be done very carefully by some electronic scanning process because it's a very delicate piece of lead folded over, and they really can't unfold it without destroying it. So they left it intact so that a, the scanning process can read it with great difficulty, multiple scans, just like if you went to a, a, uh, you know, a scanning process. Uh, what do you call it, in a hospital where you put your whole body into a scanner and then it, it cuts uh, <laughs> slices, visual slices of your body to analyze your body parts, right? That's what this is, but it's only it's done on a piece of lead instead of a living body. Okay, revolutionary artifact with several lines of text centuries older than any known Hebrew inscription from Israel and probably anywhere else in the world and paralleling several scriptures regarding Israel's entry into Canaan by Christopher Eames, March 21st, I'm sorry, March 24th. So all this information has just come out in the last two weeks. And there's a picture of the, the lead curse tablet right here. Quote, And it shall come to pass, when Yahweh thy Elohim shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, that thou shalt set the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon Mount Ebal. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, Deuteronomy 11.29. Also, in one of the verses, in Deuteronomy 27, it states that Yahweh instructed them to build a, a monument out of plaster, Put, some, put up some rocks and combine them with plaster together. Well, they also found plaster at this site at Mount Ebal, folks. This is an incredible archaeological discovery. Continuing. In a press release today, archaeologist Dr. Scott Stripling and his team of archaeologists and ep ep epigraphers announced that uh, those people who study uh, you know, inscriptions announced the stunning discovery of a folded lead curse tablet following the wet sifting of excavation fills at the site of Joshua's altar on Mount Ebal. Okay, and so what they did was, the, this Mount Ebal was discovered 40 or 50 years ago, 
by an Israeli archaeologist who was actually a skeptic, did not believe in God, didn't believe that the Bible was uh, the, the historicity of the Israelites. He was just a plain old skeptic, right? And so he, would, he probably wouldn't have recognized it if he saw it. But anyway, what they did was they started excavating, and uh, they made three mounds of debris piles in which they didn't throw anything away. They just made these debris piles, which were to be sifted through later. Well, 40 years later, somebody actually sifted through the debris pile, and they found this cursed tablet. The cursed tablet, or defixio, unearthed in 2019 and believed to date to the late Bronze Age II period, circa 1400 to 1200 BCE, okay, or BC, so I think 1400 is closer, contains an ancient Hebrew inscription consisting of 40 thus far deciphered letters. So there's still more that have yet to be deciphered. The discovery is centuries older than any known Hebrew inscription from ancient Israel, according to the press release. In a joint effort between four scientists from the Academy of Sciences of the Czech Republic, and two esteemed epigraphers, uh, Gershon Galil of the University of Haifa and Peter Gert van der Veen of Johannes Gutenberg Universität Mainz, that's Germany, the proto-alphabetic inscription was deciphered to read the following, and here is how they translate it. Cursed, 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 cursed by the god Yahweh, you will die cursed. And this is basically an oath that the Israelites took to be upon themselves if they fail to obey Yahweh's commandments, you will die cursed. Cursed you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. Okay, that's what they have uncovered. Now, and then they show the divine name Yahweh from Mount Ebal in the proto-alphabetic script, which uh, precedes, you can see the, uh, the, the letters taking shape but I'll leave the epigraphers to figure out how this, the middle uh, symbol, which eventually winds up being an H, looks like a man, you know, uh, with legs spread and arms spread. And so if you turn that on its side, it becomes an H. So that's probably how the letter evolved, okay? The tablet remarkably parallels the account in Deuteronomy 11, 27, and Joshua 8 which record the construction of an altar on this site at the time of the Israelite conquest of Canaan and the declaration of curses from it as part of a wider address establishing blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, i.e. Deuteronomy 28 and 30.19. Not only that, the inscription is by far the earliest use of the Hebrew name of God of Israel, Yahweh, predating the next earliest inscription by centuries. In the words of Professor Gershon Galil, the discovery represents, quote, absolutely the most important inscription ever found in Israel, unquote. As explained in our latest issue of Let the Stones Speak, there are two stone altars at the site, a large early Iron Age I altar circa 1200 BC, which was built over the top of a smaller, original, late Bronze Age II altar, both excavated by the late Haifa University archaeologist, archaeologist Adam Zertal. This earlier original altar is believed by Stripling to be Joshua's, and together with the inscribed amulet, could date up to two centuries earlier, 
than the larger later altar, thus matching the internal biblical time frame for this event. As we said, it's more around 1400 BC. And there's all kinds of more information thanks to computers and thanks to computerized imaging, etc., etc., and computer analysis. The archaeology of ancient Israel and the ancient world are just coming alive with new facts and more exact dates. Okay, so here is a drawing of the double altar, the circular altar, which apparently was left intact or might have been buried by the later altar. So they discovered the circular altar underneath the rectangular altar. And this has figures to the left of it, which looked like writing to me, uh, writing made in stone. But uh, I'm just uh, speculating here. It sure looks like it. According to Professor Zertal, the square altar matches description of Jerusalem's temple altar, but was built two centuries after the biblical date for Joshua. The smaller circular altar, Installation 94, sits directly under and in the exact center of the later 13th century B.C. altar. Dr. Stripping believes Installation 94 is likely Joshua's altar. So they still have more investigating to do here, and they're undoubtedly going to come up with more facts. Now, this announcement was scheduled to be later, and they were trying to hold this information up. Uh, in fact, the lead archaeologist defied protocol by issuing the, the, the statement of making a public release of this information before the scheduled date. And I think the reason for it was because uh, they were afraid other people might make the announcement <laughs> because the word was leaking out and steal their thunder, right? So the actual archaeologists on the site said, okay, we got to present this information now. This is a hot potato. We don't want this potato to uh, burn up. In 2019, Stripling and his associates for Biblical Research team, with the support of the Shamran Regional Council, wet-sifted Zertal's excavated material. According to Stripling, quote, These types of amulets are well known in the Hellenistic and Roman periods, but Zertal's excavated pottery dated to the Iron Age, i.e. 1200 to 1100 B.C., and Late Bronze Age, 1550 to 1200 B.C. Our discovery of a Late Bronze Age inscription stunned me. The proto-alphabetic tablet was examined with advanced tomographic scans. Galil noted that it was written in symmetrical, chiastic parallelism. Reading the script proved tedious, but each day we recovered new letters and words written in a very ancient script, noted Van der Veen. Thus far, only preserved text contained within the folded tablet has been translated and published as part of the press release. The more heavily damaged script on the outside of the tablet is still being studied. A peer-reviewed article on the discovery is currently in process and will be published later this year by Stripling, Galil, Van Der Veen, Ivana Kumpova, Yaroslav Valach, Daniel Vavrik, and Michael Vopolinsky. So there's a lot of archaeologists involved in this, and no doubt, uh, even more great information is yet to come. Analysis of the lead by Hebrew University's professor Nayama Yaholoma Mack. Nayama, that's Noah's wife's name. 
<laughs> Does she know that? Revealed that the metal had been sourced from the Greek mining area Lorion, a site notable for late Bronze Age lead products, thus matching with the epigraphic and archaeological material. As it stands, the discovery looks set to revolutionize academic discourse about numerous elements, including the antiquity of the Hebrew alphabet and literacy, as well as the wider historicity of the Israelite conquest and accounts contained in the Torah, long dismissed by many scholars as mythical. Their mouths have been shut, folks. As Stripling commented in today's press conference, the discovery has enormous implications. Yes, the Bible has always been proved to be correct. Every man a liar except the Bible scribes. The late Ebal excavator Zertal himself admitted in his book, A Nation Born, quote, My academic background made it difficult for me to accept the idea of Joshua's altar being a tangible reality. Of course, he's a Jew. He doesn't believe the Bible. This is what Christians must understand. Jews do not believe the Bible. They have their own book called the Talmud. I had argued that the Bible was full of myths, unquote. Yet, he noted, if we have found material evidence of a story as early as Joshua's, who knows how far back the archaeological record can take us, unquote. Well, I'm interested to find out, right? Yeah. Franz Pretorius says, the Torah without rabbis. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, the Viking roots are also based on this proto-Hebrew script. Uh, very, very great similarities between the Paleo-Hebrew and the stick figures uh, in Nordic runes, the, the American uh, uh, copper mines, etc., etc. Okay? These are strewn all over America, thousands of them, because the Israelites were here at least 1,000 B.C. and probably earlier. Okay? So, it continues. Zertal who was treated at the time by many of his colleagues as a pariah. We're talking about Jews here. They're treating another Jew as a pariah because he dared to suggest that the Bible is real history. For his eventual conclusions about Joshua's altar, save for the notable support and encouragement of Professor Benjamin Mazar, unfortunately died seven years before being able to see the fruits of the current wet sifting project. So I guess he really wasn't interested. <laughs> he was already a pariah among his Jewish, fellow Jewish acad academics and was not interested in sifting through the debris. At the press conference, Professor Gilil noted, quote, The scribe who wrote this could have written every chapter in the Bible. Now no one can claim that the Bible was written in later periods because they were able to write it very, very early. And as I have argued, in other you know, uh, shows, that Ham, Shem, and Japheth all had to speak the same language. And what is that language called? Proto-Hebrew. That's what it's called. Hebrew was the first language, and all other languages developed from it. Not Canaanite, because there is another school of academia, and, you know, people with no credentials at all, claiming that this is proto-Canaanite. But since Canaan 
was a Hamite, that Ham was the brother of Shem and Japheth, <laughs> what language did they speak? It was Proto-Hebrew, folks. And we have argued many times with Pastor Martin's uh, on Voice of Christian Israel that Hebrew predates Phoenician, which is claimed to come from Proto-Canaanite, by hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. Yet these academics, these fake academics, fake-academics, claim that Canaanite was the original language and that the Israelites borrowed the worship of Yahweh from the Canaanites. I'm sorry. It didn't work that way. The Canaanites, yeah, they did worship Yahweh, but they worship all other kinds of gods as well because they love to hedge their pagans, hedge their bets, and they pray to all kinds of gods. But the Israelites only had one god. And the archaeology of the time and of the 400 years after that show that the Israelites worshipped Yahweh exclusively for the next 400 years, thus proving without a shadow of a doubt that Yahweh is the name by which they worship the Creator. Continuing, Stripling followed up, citing the book of Job, the earliest book in the canon, which mentions the writing of texts on lead with an iron pen. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron pen and lead, unquote, quoting Job 19.23-24. So we have this very method of inscribing words or letters on lead being talked about in the book of Job. Initially, the plan was to unveil the artifact to the public at the time of the article's publication later this summer. However, after certain details surrounding the discovery inadvertently made their way online and began circulating on social media, the release date was pushed forward. Yeah, they didn't want other people to steal their thunder. Hey, we discovered this. Let us make the announcement. As Professor Van Der Veen commented in a Facebook post, unfortunately, there were some colleagues that sought to snatch the item from us and get it published under their name. Oh, wow, fraud. That would have been fraud, wouldn't it? I bet those were Jews. We thus await further information on the discovery later this year. So I guess they'll make a full announcement sometime in June. For more information on Zertal's excavations, the identification of Joshua's altar, and an interview with Dr. Scott Stripling about the discovery of this amulet, see our latest magazine issue featuring Mount Ebal and sign up for a free subscription below. And this is, the magazine is called, uh, what do they call it? Let the Stones Speak. And this is the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. So this has created a sensation in the entire archaeological world, folks. In the entire archaeological world. Great stuff. Okay, so I want to continue on this theme of Yahweh being the true God of the Israelites and the true God of the Bible. And for this, uh, I want to refer to the sacred names. And this is from uh, the, the archived website of Anglo-Saxon Israel. And this is on the Internet Archive. And I'll copy it and put it in the chat room so you can follow along. 
and this is research I've done on the sacred names and compiled in this article here, which you know basically is from how should I put it? These are primarily independent theologians, independent epigraphers, independent archaeologists, not in the main, not affiliated with any particular denomination. And typically, archaeologists and theologians who are affiliated with a particular denomination don't dare deviate from that denomination's dogma. Okay? So either the archaeologist either leaves the denomination and just publishes independently, or the denomination will not sanction the work that he has done. It's these types of individuals, these types of researchers, who virtually, to the last researcher, insist that the name is Yahweh. Okay, so this article is entitled The Sacred Names Yahweh and Yahshua. Within the Christian identity movement, there is an ongoing debate about whether we should use the original Hebrew names for our God and also for our Savior and King, Jesus Christ. The two sides of this issue are A, the English names are good enough, and we do not need to go back to the Hebrew or Aramaic to address our divine sovereign. That's A. And B, the original Hebrew names convey meanings which are lost in the English translation. I am an advocate of the latter position, and I am going to do my best to give all the reasons why I advocate for the use of the divine Hebrew appellations, Yahweh and Yahshua. Now, this is not to say that there might be, it might be pronounced Yahweh, and uh, yeah, some people pronounce Yahshua, Yahoshua, they add another syllable. But what I would argue is that in Hebrew, as in just about every other language, names may start out long and then they wind up being short, like Jonathan becomes John, <laughs> right? And uh, likewise, there's many names that are shortened over time. Yahweh is shortened to Yah. But Yahshua, since it means Yahweh saves, was never shortened. It's Yeshua in the Aramaic, and it becomes Jesus by transliteration from the Aramaic or the Hebrew into the Greek, because the Greek does not have a word that compares with either Yahweh or Yahshua. A transliteration is a word made up of the, how should I put it, the sounds created by the original language, and they attempt to put those sounds in the letters of the object language, in this case, namely Greek. And that's where they get the name Jesus from. But in Greek, the word Jesus has absolutely no meaning. None. Okay? It's just a substitute for Yahshua. So let's continue. Let me say at the beginning that I have no objection to the use of the English Jesus Christ, we have all grown up using this name, and there is a certain reverence with which this name is spoken. So I do not wish to detract from this in any way. Also, there is a particular singularity to the name Jesus Christ, well, because it's made up, right? It is singular, which uh, is shared by no other human being, past, present, or future. There is no mistaking, although Jesus is very common among the Spaniards, Spanish-speaking people, there is no mistaking whom you are talking about when you invoke this name. You're talking about the Messiah, obviously. 
As a historian for my people, Israel, the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, and Caucasian peoples, I have come to appreciate the Hebrew Scriptures from a multi-generational standpoint. When I read the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Moses and the Exodus and the writing of the commandments in stone, I know that my ancestors, not Jews, my Israelite ancestors were present there and that my very blood is witness to these events. I feel no sense of disconnection at all, although most Christians feel disconnected because they falsely believe that there were Jews there and only Jews. It is as if these events happened yesterday to my own parents and to my brothers and sisters. Indeed, I feel that I was present there. Their history is my history, plain and simple. My blood is their blood, plain and simple. As a bilingual writer, English and German, I understand the power of words and how difficult it is to convey the full impact of a statement when translating from one language to another. Considering all the problems of translating simple declarative sentences, like C.J. Run, <laughs> that's hard enough. Especially when the language contains no vowels and no punctuation, it is all caps, which is true of the Greek as well, then wow, you, you've got your hands full trying to translate this stuff. When we add to this complicated clauses, figures of speech, idioms, slang, vernacular, etc., it is a wonder that we understand the intentions of the Hebrew scribes and prophets at all. Most scholars agree that the King James Version is a poor translation at best. It was written by Englishmen who had, had little working knowledge of spoken Hebrew or of Hebrew traditions. In addition, to this problem is the fact that these translators had little or no knowledge of the true identity of the Anglo-Saxons as the true heirs of the heritage of the Israelites. The King James Version perpetuates the absurd idea that the Jews are identical to the Israelites. Even more problematic is the fact that the prevailing worldview that these men were laboring under was the flat earth theory. theory sorry, flat earthers. Thus forcing them to translate God's word from that limited point of view. Okay, that was the prevailing theory at the time. However, knowing that our Bibles are fraught with these def defects, it is easy to reconstruct the language to harmonize with reality. We simply isolate these defects and change the language accordingly. I can say that every time I have retranslated verses with these objects in mind, the Bible has become a very accurate book. And this is in terms of history, science, prophecy, archaeology, linguistics, etc. In other words, if you know what the original Hebrew and Greek words mean, which are often falsely translated, then you have to do the word studies and determine, well, what do these words really mean? And then you can get the real meaning of the verse. Continuing. It is important to understand that the original Hebrew used by our ancient ancestors conveyed much more meaning that even modern interpreters have imagined. This is especially true of the individuals that the Bible names. Their names are not just names. Their names are trademarks which tell us what they were known for. Like the name Judah or Yehuda means praise Yahweh or Yahweh be praised. There is a reason why Jacob was named Israel or renamed Israel. 
There is a reason why Abraham was renamed Abraham. There is a reason why Esau was renamed Edom. Esau was a Saxon, that is, the son of Isaac. But when he rejected his heritage and married into the hook-nosed Hittite race, he became a Jew, and his name was changed to Edom. Biblical names reveal much about the individual, so to ignore their meanings is to ignore knowledge and wisdom. And the two most important names in the Bible are Yahweh and Yahshua. The Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. Now the study that these archaeologists have done at Mount Ebal only has three letters, Y-H-W. Okay. Uh, later on, it became four letters because apparently they... I don't know, Yahweh, even if it's only three letters, it should still symbolize at least two two syllables, okay? But they added the, the fourth uh, uh, letter, so it becomes the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Commandment number three. Thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh thy Elohim in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Okay? So... That is true for the word God, but the word God comes from the Hebrew Elohim, which actually is a plural for gods, goddesses, uh, magistrates. It has many meanings. It is translated as such in the Bible, whereas L-O-R-D, all in caps, is only comes from one source, Y-H-W-H. -H. That's the only source for that L-O-R-D. Continuing. Now, here we have a very important development within Christianity. Israel has forgotten God's name. What is being discussed here is not swearing while using the word God in a sentence. What this commandment is referring to is the name Yahweh. Without the vowels, the name is known as the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. Israel's God has a name, and that name is Yahweh. We haven't been taking his name in vain because we have forgotten it. In fact, when Yahweh divorced the house of Israel and sent us into the wilderness for our purification, one of the main reasons was that we were using his name, Yahweh, in vain. By causing us to forget his name, we were no longer able to violate this commandment. As we come into remembrance as to who we are and what we are here for, it's about time we reclaim our heritage and start using God's name again with sincerity and purpose. Quote, and Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of their fathers hath sent me unto you. And they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And Elohim said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, This shalt thou say to the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, moreover, unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Yahweh, Elohim of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Okay? So, these verses are crucial to understanding what his true name is. It means I am that I am. Continue. Now when Yahweh says, this is my name forever, 
I have to pay attention. The Bible repeatedly admonishes us to revere God's name in prayer, praise, and song. But we haven't done this for centuries. His name is forever, and it is to be a memorial unto all Israel. So why haven't we been using his name? One of these answers is provided by Strong Concordance itself, although unintentionally. The English rendition, quote, the Lord, in all caps, L-O-R-D, of the Hebrew. Yahweh is listed as word number 3068. Strong, obviously influenced by rabbinical distortions of the Hebrew scriptures, incorrectly uses the traditional Jewish spelling and pronunciation of Jehovah. Jehovah is a medieval rabbinical concoction which is typically unbiblical. Virtually all scholars agree that the correct pronunciation is Yahweh. Again, I'm referring to these independent theologians and scholars, linguists, who are not necessarily preaching denominational Christianity. Okay? So they don't have an axe to grind. This is the conclusion these people have come to. Strong, obviously you know, uh, influenced by rabbis, he was at Jehovah. With uh, virtually all scholars agree that the correct pronunciation is Yahweh, with the first syllable pronounced like the German Yah, and the second syllable pronounced like the German We, as in Ge and Zeheim, meaning go home. We and Ge are not to say are not like gay in the English, which is a very strong a sound. Gay is in between the e and the a of the English rendition of the letter e. Okay, so this German ve sound is longer than the English short e, as in ed, but shorter than the English a sound, as in way. It is almost directly in between, and in Hebrew, the w is pronounced like a v as in Yahweh. So phonetically, the name should be pronounced Yahweh, although the anglicized Yahweh has become very common among CI people. There are alternate spellings and pronunciations, but Yahweh is accepted almost universally by Hebrew scholars, including Joseph Rotherham, who wrote his own version of the Bible, which retains the name of Yahweh throughout. And many others do. So the uh, Jerusalem Bible does as well. Since we have forgotten we are Israel, we also have forgotten to use his name when praying to him. God wants us to address him by his name, Yahweh. Yahweh means creator, or more primordially, I am becoming, or I am that I am, or even more simply, I am. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Yahweh, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day, and in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. Psalms 89, verses 15 and 16. Unto thee, O God, or Elohim, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks, for that thy name is near, thy wondrous works declare. Psalm 75, 1. Help us, O Elohim of our salvation, for the glory of thy name, and deliver us and purge away our sins, for thy name's sake, Psalm 79.9. When we address God by his name, Yahweh, we are acknowledging his self-creating being. His name means causation, creativity, will, and power. He is the one who creates everything and allows everything else to be created because of him. 
This awesome power is reflected in his name, and that's why we are commanded, one, to use it properly, and two, not take it in vain. Okay, in, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel, Psalm 61. A major feature of the restoration of Israel in the latter days is the rediscovery of his name. We are Yah's people, and Yah is our God. When we address him by his name, Yahweh, he will listen to us. Not that he won't listen to you if you address him as God, or as Lord, or as Master, whatever name you choose, if you sincerely pray to the Creator, the Lord God of Israel, he will surely hear you. No doubt about that. So you don't have to restrict your prayers to the name Yahweh. However, the Bible clearly says that that's what his name is. A major feature of this uh, is that the rediscovery of his name. Okay? God is a title, not a name. Very important to understand. The word God is a title. It is not his name. Yahweh is also an affirmation of life. In the Germanic languages, Yah means yes. We accept life with all of its challenges and responsibilities because life is a blessing by Yahweh given to us. The subject of God's name is a very important one. It is the subject of many philological articles and sermons. Again, there's a lot of dispute, but uh, the articles I've read, the vast majority, uh, line up in favor of the pronunciation of Yahweh, and they, they have no problem with the Tetragrammaton whatsoever. One of the main differences between Judaism and biblical Christianity is the use of God's name. There is a common misunderstanding by non-identity Christians that Yahweh is a Jewish tradition and that to use Yahweh is an insult to Christianity or to the white race. This idea is completely false and is based on the erroneous assumption that the Jews are Hebrews. The Jews were never Hebrews. The Hebrews, by definition, are racially pure Adamites. The Jews have always been a mixed multitude with only partial Adamite Hebrew blood. This blood they got from Cain, who was a half-breed Adamite Nephilite, second from Jacob's brother, second uh, infusion of Adamite blood from Jacob's brother Esau, who was a race trader, and thirdly from King John Hyrcanus, who merged the Edomite nation of Idumea with the Judahite nation of Judah around 150 B.C. I have recently... Uh, upgraded that to 120 B.C. as I found a reference to the first Edomite being circumcised in Judah, ultimately called Judea, because it combined Judah and Idumea together into one country, but not one race that could never possibly happen. And that date was given as 121 B.C. This makes the Jews mixed-race foreigners at best and outright impostors at worst. Either way, they are not the heirs of the kingdom because Yahweh does not permit race mixing. Deuteronomy 23.2 No mamzer shall enter the congregation of Yahweh. And as long as they impersonate Israel and pretend to be us, they will be the first in line to steal our inheritance. In fact, this is their only reason for being because they know that Jesus Christ is coming back to judge them for their iniquity. Even though they like to fool dumb Christians, with the slogan, Jesus was a Jew, the rabbis know full well that Jesus was a Judahite, 
not a Jew. Jesus was not a mixed-breed individual. He was a 100% Judah. And remember, the name Judah means Yahweh uh, be praised. Contrary to the teachings of the Bible, Judaism forbids the use of God's name, Yahweh. Why would God's chosen people disobey their own God and not use his name at all? Well, since the Jews aren't God's chosen people, it's easy to understand why they don't. In order to take God's name in vain, you have to know what that name is. Israel has forgotten his name, and the Jews forbid the use of it. Most translations of the Bible contain the expression, the Lord, and capital L-O-R-D, all caps, in place of the name Yahweh. But Lord, in English, is the same as Baal in Hebrew. Why would God want us to address him as Baal when he condemns Baal worship? Obviously, God does not want us to do so. The explanation for this curious phenomenon lies in the fact that the translators of the King James Bible had adopted the Jewish tradition of replacing Yahweh with the Lord wherever it occurred in the Old Testament. What is the biblical justification for doing this? None. <laughs> there simply is no justification for doing this. The Jews simply do it. That's the justification, right? So let's continue. But there are two reasons why Christians have this tradition. The first is the false assumption that the rabbis are the authorities on this subject. As all CI people know, Judaism is not the religion of the Old Testament. Their quote-unquote holy book is the Talmud, which often changes and even contradicts the Old Testament. For the rabbi, it overrules the Old Testament. It would not be erroneous to say that whatever the Torah forbids, the Talmud permits. For this development, we can directly blame our ancestor, John Hyrcanus, for had he not merged Idumea with Judah, the mixed-race sect known as the Pharisees could not have emerged over the hereditary Levitical priesthood. It was these Pharisees who invented the religion known today as Judaism. The second reason can only be a sinister motive by the rabbis who want to keep true Israel from praying to their God in an effective way. If we don't know our own God's name, he does not respond to us in a personal manner. It's the difference between shouting, Hey you, versus Dear John. Or the difference between wishing upon a star and making a personal appear, appeal to your creator. Now it's interesting, the founding fathers of America the vast majority of whom were devout Christians, many of them non-denominational, as George Washington was not primarily non-denominational, they referred to God as providence, the provider. So that works too. That's the name that George Washington used when he was praying to Yahweh at Valley Forge. He was praying to his personal God, and the name he used was Providence. Okay? So it doesn't, doesn't really, and obviously his prayers were answered. <laughs> Otherwise, the Americans would have never won the Revolutionary War. So if you pray sincerely and, and make a regular habit of it, your prayers will be answered. Okay? But if you know his real name, his true name, I say your prayers will be taken even more seriously 
and may be honored more quickly. Okay, let's continue. I will publish the name of Yahweh, ascribe ye greatness unto our Elohim. Deuteronomy 32.3 I will praise thy name, O Yahweh, for it is good. Psalm 54.6 the, the source word there is the Tetragrammaton, not Elohim. The Bible is full of admonitions for us to use his name and praise his name, especially in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a book of prayers in which almost every prayer is dedicated to his name and to the use and praise of his name. This should be a lesson for all Israelites, especially when it comes to answering the question, why doesn't God answer my prayers? <laughs> when you start addressing him by his name, Yahweh, then you will start getting answers. But when asking for personal help, be sure to make a plea for all Israel and for all of your friends and relatives because selfish prayer is not what Christianity is about. We pray for others, and we do what we can to build the kingdom of God here on earth. Remember that Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So put the kingdom first, not yourself. That is a, a key. Put the kingdom first, not yourself. Now, obviously, if you've got an injury, right, or, or an illness, or a sick member of the family, obviously you want to pray for healing for yourself and for your family, etc. But if you can, always remember that there are other Israelites in similar circumstances to yours, and pray for them also. Matthew chapter 25, where Yahshua tells us to act with kindness and, uh, and uh, generosity to our fellow Israelites. That's your ticket to heaven. That's your ticket to the kingdom. It's those acts of kindness, not mere belief. When you, especially when you pray to him in his name, you better also do well, prayer and fasting, for sure, but also acts of kindness to your brethren. Because without these acts of kindness to your brethren, you will not enter the kingdom. That's the message of Matthew chapter 25. Read it for yourselves. Okay, so let's continue. Pray first for instruction and enlightenment, and the same for others, and only thereafter for supplication, that is for your personal, for your personal appeals. What is your name? Are you more likely to respond to someone who uses your name or to someone who calls out, hey, Baal, right? or hey, you? <laughs> you talking to me? To underscore this topic about God's name, I would like to quote from the preface of the Holy Bible, Revised Standard Version, 1972. Quote, a major departure for the practice of the American Standard Version is the rendering of the divine name, the Tetragrammaton. The American Standard Version used the term Jehovah. The King James Version has employed this in four places, but everywhere else except in the three cases where it was employed as part of the proper name used the English word L-O-R-D, or in certain cases G-O-D, printed in capitals. The present revision returns to the procedure of the King James Version, which follows the precedent of the ancient Greek and Latin translators and the long-established practice of reading of the Hebrew scriptures 
in the synagogue. Okay? So they're following Jewish precedent. Now, dear Christian, should we follow Jewish tradition just because the Jews do it? Or should we follow what the Bible tells us to do? Your answer may determine which side you're on at the judgment day. Continuing with the quotation. While it is almost, if not quite certain, that the name was originally pronounced Yahweh, this pronunciation was not indicated when the Masoretes, the Jewish scribes, added vowel signs to the consonantal Hebrew text. To the four consonants YHWH of the name, which had come to be regarded as too sacred to be pronounced, which I add here, by whom and by what authority, please, they attached vowel signs indicating that in its place should be read the Hebrew word for Adonai, meaning Lord or Master, or Elohim, meaning God. The ancient Greek translators substituted the word Kyrios, Lord, for the name. The Vulgate likewise used the Latin word Dominus. The form Jehovah is of late medieval origin. It is a combination of the consonants of the divine name and the vowels attached to it by the Masoretes, but belonging to a an entirely different word. The sound of Y is represented by J, and the sound of W by V, as in Latin. For two reasons, the representation, the committee, sorry, has returned to the more familiar usage of the King James Version. One, the word Jehovah does not accurately represent any form of the name ever used in Hebrew. And two, the use of any proper name for the one and only God, as though there were other gods from whom he had to be distinguished, was discontinued in Judaism before the Christian era and is entirely inappropriate for the universal faith of the Christian church. And this is from the preface. And, uh, this last statement I totally disagree with. Yahweh has a personal name, and we use it to distinguish him from all other gods. Right? And so what they're saying here, as if there were any other gods to distinguish him from, of course there are. Baal, for one. In other words, in other writings, I have discussed the merits of the Masoretic text versus the Greek Septuagint, and I have become convinced that the Septuagint is the more accurate text. The Septuagint is a translation from the Hebrew into the Greek by Judahite, not Jewish, scribes. The Jews had nothing to do with the writing of the Septuagint, nor did they have anything to do with the writing of the Hebrew Old Testament. The fact is that the Septuagint is Israelite literature. The Masoretic text is Jewish, not Israelite literature. The Masoretic text is a redaction of the original Hebrew scriptures, meaning they deleted a lot of stuff. The reliability of the Septuagint was proved by the discovery of certain books of the Old Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls. These Dead Sea Scroll versions proved to be older than either the Masoretic or Septuagint texts. The Septuagint almost always adheres more closely to the Dead Sea Scrolls, thus verifying that the rabbis had made changes to the original text. Many scholars have pointed out that when the, where the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, it is almost always in agreement with the Septuagint, thus suggesting that when Jesus himself quoted from Scripture, he was quoting either the Septuagint, the original Hebrew scrolls, or the Aramaic Targums. None of these texts are Jewish literature, although the Jews claim that it is. The rabbis pretend that this is their literature, 
but no rabbi ever wrote a word of any of it, and certainly no Pharisee ever wrote a word of it. Of course, the Masoretic text didn't even exist in his, in his time, that is, Yahshua's time, for it was not committed to writing until 1000 A.D. Okay, so what's the original text, folks? The one that was appended in 250 B.C., Septuagint? Or the one that wasn't really compiled until 1000 A.D., the Masoretic? I think the choice here is very simple. In all, the Masoretes deleted the sacred name a total of 7,000 times. Who gave them the authority to do this? What arrogance! Moses in Deuteronomy 4.2 declared that no one has the authority to add or subtract from God's word. Yet these rabbis arrogate unto themselves the editorial power to delete the holiest of names. Since the Masoretic text is the Jewish version, we must regard it with suspicion any changes that the rabbis have made to the text, especially when it comes to crossing out the name Yahweh and replacing it with the title Lord. Such a practice can only be described as blasphemous, for the Bible declares over and over that we are to use and praise his name. Nowhere does the Bible even suggest the idea that the name is, quote, too holy to be pronounced, unquote. This false piety is just what that, false and deceptive. You should know that the main job of all rabbis is to find clever and deceptive ways to use words to make the, their evil deeds sound good. They are hypocrites, the like of which the universe has never seen. And they won't be seeing them much longer. Unfortunately, the committee, which is to be commended for dropping the use of the word Jehovah, nevertheless falls into another trap. Conclusion number two, to re repeat the state uh, to repeat states the use of any proper name for the one and only God as though there were other gods from whom he had to be distinguished was discontinued in Judaism before the Christian era and is entirely inappropriate for the universal faith of the Christian church so in other words Jewish tradition is appropriate for the Christian church really really dear Israel it just happens to be a fact that we must distinguish between Yahweh and other gods. If we do not, then we fall into the same old predicament of the rebellious Israelites in the land of Canaan. Even the New Testament tells us that there are many gods. There be gods many and lords many, 1 Corinthians 8.5. This is not a denial of monotheism. Monotheism does not deny the existence of other spiritual entities. It is rather the assertion that Yahweh has no equal. Quote, among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Yahweh, Psalm 86.8. The Old Testament frequently uses the expression Yahweh Elohim. Since Elohim means gods in the plural, taken collectively, this expression clearly implies that Yahweh is the god of gods, or the highest ranking god of the universe, indeed the creator of the universe. Universe, by the way, literally means one word, Yahweh's word. It is the only fitting that this universal being have a name unto himself. Considering the above-cited biblical references concerning our God, Yahweh, and the commanded use of his proper name, I find it inconceivable that these apparently well-intentioned Christian editors could make such a stupid statement. Nowhere in the Bible are we admonished not to use God's name except for taking his name in vain. On the contrary, 
Honoring and praising his holy name is one of the highest virtues of biblical Christian. Let there be no mistake, the avoidance of the proper use of God's name is a Pharisaic deception. It is the leaven of the Pharisees at its worst, and all Christians should become aware that this Judeo-Christian subterfuge is part of the Talmudic endgame designed to weaken Christianity and true Israel. Have we taken the bait? We sure have. Tetragrammaton in the Septuagint. I have often argued that proper names should not be translated from one language to another unless there is a common and satisfactory equivalent in the new language. This is not the case for Yahweh. There is no equivalent in any other language. Therefore, all Bibles should simply contain the Tetragrammaton, no matter what the language. There is no reason to translate a proper name if there is no equivalent in the object language, such as translating uh, Giuseppe Verdi into Joe Green, <laughs> right? We want to make sure that you're talking about Giuseppe Verdi and not some other guy by the name of Joe Green. So it's a term of familiarity, Giuseppe Verdi, the Italian, not the uh, American football player, <laughs> Joe Green. So the Giuseppe Verdi is never translated as Joe Green. They just keep it in the original language. And that's the way it should be, okay? There's no reason to translate it, okay? Because we mean the one and only Giuseppe Verdi and nobody else. Okay. So let's continue. The best we can do is to translate I uh, translate the holy name into I am. But this does not do the name justice, as you will see in the next section. Oh, uh, sorry, I skipped a uh, uh, paragraph here. Having once formulated this opinion of the non-translatability of the Tetragrammaton, I was tremendously gratified to find out that the Septuagint writers, scribes of Judahite descent, commissioned by King Ptolemy of Egypt, chose to retain the name of Yahweh in the original Paleo-Hebrew script within the Greek body of the text. And I will give you the evidence shortly. Not only did they retain the Paleo-Hebrew script, they retained the original right-to-left direction of the Hebrew while using the left-to-right direction of the Greek in the same document. My intuition regarding the non-translation of Yahweh was correct. The Judahite scribes saw no reason to translate Yahweh into Greek. Indeed, they could not translate it into Greek because the Greeks had no word for it, and neither does English. Okay, here we go. Here is the document of photographic evidence of... The Septuagint, the earliest copies of the Septuagint containing the Tetragrammaton, we have visual evidence of the fact that the Greek is written left to right, but the name of Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton, is retained right to left in Paleo-Hebrew. In Paleo-Hebrew. Let's continue. The best we can do is to transliterate it into I am, which is what the Bible actually does. I am that I am. <laughs> In Exodus, Exodus 
3, 14, and 15. But this does not do the name justice, as you will see in the next section. For those readers who might be skeptical of the Septuagint claim, I invite you to inspect the online pictorial evidence of the Dead Sea Scroll version of the Septuagint. The Paleo-Hebrew script is unmistakable in its position. One web address, and this is the one I just gave you, is www.elia.com. If this link is no longer active, just type the phrase Paleo-Hebrew in the Septuagint into your browser, and you will get many references, many with pictorial evidence. In my oldest copy of the King James Bible, I went to the trouble of crossing out every instance of Lord and writing Yahweh in its place. This is just the beginning of undoing the damage done by, to our heritage by the Jews. I was again gratified to learn that the Jerusalem Bible, a Catholic version, actually, uh, uh, that's wrong. It, it's more of an independent version. There may be some Catholics involved, but I recently discovered it's more of an independent version. Retains the name of Yahweh throughout, even in the apocryphal books which are included as part of that Bible. There is also now available a Christian identity version of the Bible which retains the name of Yahweh. It is called the proper name version of the King James Bible. It is also available online. Oh, and there, now there's many other, since I wrote this, there are many other proper name or sacred name Bibles that have been published. All of this just goes to show that there is no justification for substituting the title Lord for the proper name Yahweh. It is out of the question. It is human meddling in divine affairs. Were it not for the satanic connivings of the Rebbes of Judaism, this tradition would have never crept into our religious experience. Only a Yahweh-hating bunch of scumbags like the Pharisees and Nazarites could have done something like this. And as you ought to know, they hate Yahshua even more because Yahshua was God in the flesh come to condemn them for their evil doctrines. And of course, Yahshua means Yahweh saves, or Yahweh is salvation. So the very name Yahshua, transliterated into Jesus, means Yahweh saves. As we, again, all Hebrew names of the patriarchs, especially, have a meaning. And in fact, sometimes they even make full sentences, like Yehuda is Yahweh be praised. Or Yahweh is praised. It could be turned into an actual sentence. All of this just goes to show that there is no justification for substituting the, the title Lord for the proper name Yahweh. As we recapture our heritage from those who have been stealing it from us, we begin to understand the truly perfidious nature of the Jew. Yahshua, Jesus, told us that they are the children of the devil and that their religion is the religion of lies. It is no wonder that they hate the New Testament because in rejecting Jesus the Christ, they have declared their complicity with the father of lies. The victim of deicide on the cross will return the favor at the judgment day. I guarantee it. Well, I can only guarantee it because the Bible does. The meaning now of Yahweh. Catherine Ponder in her book, The Millionaire Joshua, has this to say about the sacred name. Quote, the Hebrews used the term I am so much that they became known as the people of the I am, or the people of Yahweh. They considered the term I am the lost word of power, which, when released in meditation and through spoken decrees, or prayer, could perform miracles in an instant. Whereas the phrase I am, meaning the God power within, had been the song of Moses, 
and his secret text for success, it was expanded, the expanded phrase, I am that I am, meaning the universal God power that had been the Song of Joshua and his secret text for success, page 14, from her book, The Millionaire Joshua. If Catherine Ponder is correct in her assertions, then it means that the Hebrews and the Israelites were known for their use of the Tetragrammaton, not for their denial of it. It would also mean that our proper use of the sacred name is a very powerful prayer tool. This tool has been lost to us for many centuries, thanks to Jewish deception and Judeo-Christian complicity and gullibility. In a pamphlet entitled Yahweh's Name at the End of the Age by Yahweh's New Covenant Assembly, we read these words, quote, Substitute names and titles cannot serve as translations, for the human mind cannot put into one word all that is meant by the name Yahweh. These common substitutes conceal the holy name of our Creator, Yahweh, and make him to appear as nothing more than just another deity, much like the pagan deities of heathendom. Compare this statement with the exact opposite point of view of the editorial committee quoted above. Their opinion stated that we do not need to use his holy name because there are no other gods that compete with him. But that is not the point. The point is that other gods do compete with him in our minds. And when we use his name, there is no competition because no other god is known by this name. Further on, the authors of this pamphlet say, quote, There are other arguments and excuses as such. You are trying to say that unless I pronounce a certain Hebrew name as you do, I have no salvation. Rest assured that he who created all things also created man's tongue to pronounce his name Yahweh. No one seems to have a problem with other biblical Hebrew names like Daniel, Ruth, and Saul. So why resist the most vital name of all? Acts 4.12 says, There is no salvation in any other name, because Yahweh means salvation. That is, Yahshua means salvation. Or Yahweh is our salvation. That could be, that is a direct quote. I forget which verse. Isn't it simply common sense to suggest that the Most High God, Yahweh, would have a name reserved only for himself? All the objections to the sacred name fall flat when you really understand what his name means and that there is no other entity like him. Now, it is true that the title God shares some of the many connotations that his sacred name imply, such as majesty and power. But the word God lacks the personal presence implied by Yahweh, which, as Catherine Potter pointed out, means God within. It can hardly be denied that the modern religion has lost the sense of God within. So many Christians seek their salvation through outside intercessors, such as charismatic priests, and preachers, when scripture tells us over and over, the kingdom of heaven is within you. It is ironic that so many sincere Christians are searching for something out there, such as a dynamic preaching, that instead needs to be brought into existence from in here. Live the kingdom in your personal life, and you will be living, and the kingdom will already be here. It will come to you. Studies and questionnaires have shown that most people go to church in order to get something from the church experience. Of course, true Christianity is the opposite of this spirit. 
That's why Jesus told us it is better to give than to receive. So if you act like a Christian as stated in Matthew chapter 25, giving freely of yourself to your brethren who are in need, it doesn't mean you have to empty your bank account because you also have to take care of yourself and your family, right? But when the situation arises and a, a brother or sister is in need, you do your best to give and be helpful, kind and courteous, etc. Of course, <laughs> yeah, what is true Christianity today is the gospel of personal salvation. I be myself. Charity helps us to overcome our selfishness and narrow-mindedness because it allows us to share in Yahweh's universal mind. All the self-help programs in the world cannot compare to the personal power which is expressed in the simple phrase, I am. For too many Christians go to church hoping to get something out of the church experience, but they have nothing to give. The ideals of service, charity, and self-sacrifice for the benefit of one's fellow citizens or Israelites are far from their minds. Rather, they look to churchianity for validation of their personal lifestyles, and churchianity has given it to them. And most of their preachers are happy to oblige. What a sad state of affairs, folks. What a sad state of affairs. Matthew 22, 37-40 sums it up. Thou shalt love Yahweh thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, unquote. So you have to bring it out of yourself. The kingdom is within you. Express it. When you express yourself in this manner, the kingdom happens. You don't have to wait for it. You're bringing it into existence, into being. But how many of these churches bother with these two commandments? They hear lukewarm preaching, scarf down their pancake breakfast, and go home to their soap operas, ball games, and personal routines. Kingdom building is the furthest thing from their minds, and some of them are pretty lousy neighbors on top of it, right? This reminds me of another forgotten appellation for God, namely providence. This is God as provider. He who provides us with everything we need, not to mention all that we are, including our very consciousness and self-awareness. All of these basic necessities of life and experience are provided by the Most High God, Yahweh. Yet we ignore Him or merely pay Him lip service. When we act out selfless, selfless oh, sorry, when we act out of selfless charity, we partake of his nature, which is constantly giving of himself to all of his creation, especially to us, his peculiar people. When we give of ourselves, we invite the divine essence to act through us and empower us. Contrast this philosophy with that of the so-called gospel of personal salvation, in which Christians do little more than beg for personal blessings so as to be, quote-unquote, saved. Can you say looking for love in all the wrong places? Instead of looking for it and asking for it, we should be doing it. Perhaps this concept is too simple to understand. The world at large is stuck in a pitiful woe-is-me attitude. 
They say to themselves over and over, I am poor. I am sick. I am helpless. I am a statistic. It's no wonder they are sick, poor, and helpless with so little faith in their personal presence of God. Even sincere Christians are no better than atheists, especially the ones in the 501c3 category. Try repeating yourself. I am a constant blessing to all those around me. Try repeating that. I am a constant blessing to all those around me. This does not diminish your being. See if this prayer produces a welcome attitude change. The sacred name is the means by which God enables us to share his power, but only as long as we obey his law. Very important. We have to be of one mind with the Father, otherwise we contradict his will and his natural order of the universe. And that's what the curses in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are all about. That if we do not obey his laws, all these curses will come upon us and look around you, look at the world around us. Have not these curses come upon our people and the rest of the world as well? for our disobedience. And obviously Yahweh is using the Jews to inflict all this pain upon us. He can use anybody he wants to inflict us this pain upon us. But we are guilty of breaking his laws. The churches on the top of the list. The ones who say that the law has been done away with. And that I can do anything I please because I believe in Jesus and he'll save me. Really? It's not what the Bible says. Here's John 17, 11. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. Which means unified. The one in the sense of unified. There is no oneness outside of Yahweh's law. Combining obedience to Yahweh's law and with this constant awareness of his presence is what Brother Lawrence called in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God. This is the true faith. Modern Christians have such a distorted idea of faith that they substitute their own ideas for faith. Today it has become such a diluted idea that it means little more than I believe in Jesus, therefore I am saved. Talk about ignorance combined with self-flattery and self-deception. They neither obey his law nor are they aware of his presence. Actually, from these faithless, his spirit it has willingly departed. Ernest L. Martin, in his booklet entitled The Divine Titles, has this to say. It is important to recognize the name by which the Father of the universe is denominated. There is really nothing mysterious about his identity from the point of view of Scripture because his name is used about 7,000 times in the Old Testament alone. It is not God or Lord alone, Elohim, Theos, or Kyrios, which can refer to many lesser and even evil beings. But his actual name is revealed in Scripture by four Hebrew letters, which transliterates into English as Yahweh, whom the theologians today recognize as YHWH, whom the theologians recognize as Yahweh, spoken. He is the supreme Elohim over all other Elohim gods, Theoi, Theoi, gods, or Kyrioi, lords. This name is a far more esteemed than Christ, 
anointed one, because even human beings who were anointed priests in the Old Testament were called Messiahs, or Christs, or Christs. For example, Numbers 33, sorry, Numbers 35, 25. But in the scripture, there is only one Yahweh, who is the supreme God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is also the head of, over all things, and is the one and only true deity from whom all things exist and consist. Page 9. On page 13, he states, The name of the Father was so important to the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, because within its definition is found all the dimensions of authority and influence, whether these attributes are human or spiritual, visible or invisible. Colossians 1.16. That is why Paul could say in Ephesians 4, sorry, 3, 14-19, quote, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, yet that ye being grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints which is the breadth and length and depth and height which passeth knowledge. In other words, the Father's love is breadth, is boundless, in length endless, in depth fathomless, and in height measureless. These unlimited dimensional expressions that Paul was using represent the exact definition of the name of Yahweh when it considers all its ramifications. I am that I am. I will be whatever I want to be. I am the creator. <laughs> I am the creator of all. That's what that name means. Or, as I interpret these things, knowledge of the material universe is transmitted to us when we requite his love back to him. And full comprehension of the meaning of his name infuses us with the requisite awe and gratitude that our lowly human status requires if we are to appreciate his grandeur and his love. That is why we must approach him in all humility, for we are mere specks on a planet, or as the song by Kansas says, dust in the wind. For me, using the I am is a constant reminder to me of the actual presence of God in my being, that I am made of his substance, and that I live and breathe in him. When we forget this intimate connection with him, we get lost in our own self-importance and we sink into materialism, which is where most Christians are today. So, what's in a name, you ask? Now, Jesus or Yahshua, I think I can cover this topic in the next uh, 10 minutes is about what we have left. So, we're going now into the New Testament. Yes, and, uh, oh, okay, let's continue. Jesus or Yahshua? One of the most important treatises on the subject of the sacred names is a booklet entitled The Mistaken J. It is the story of how the letter J entered into the English language. The opening paragraphs say this, quote, Often heard in the churches of our land is the refrain sung about the Savior. Then there's something about that name. In our English-speaking world, we have been taught that the saving name of the Redeemer of Israel is Jesus. So accepted is this name that few stop to consider its authenticity. But the truth is, there is indeed something about that name. That something is the inescapable fact that the Savior's name is not Jesus and never was. 
What's more, the name of the Heavenly Father is not Jehovah, a designation that is only five centuries old. Churchianity has so thoroughly immersed the world in the error of this tradition for the past 500 years that few even think to research the matter or to consider the consequences of calling on the wrong name. As a result, most continue to believe that the Hebrew Savior is called by a Latinized Greek name that could not possibly have existed at the time he walked the earth. It is a name that would have been completely foreign to him. He was not caused, called Jesus. He was called Yahshua. The story of the mistaken J goes on to explain how the letter J was incorporated into the English language around the 1500s AD. Before then, English employed the same sound for J as other languages do, namely the Y sound. Up until then, even the English referred to Jesus as Jesus. If you look at the earliest copies of the King James Bible, you will see his name spelled I-E-S-U-S. But even Jesus is, as the authors point out, a Latinized version of a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew name, uh, twice removed. The name Jesus, therefore, is thrice removed from the original, which is Yeshua. Now, all scholars agree that the name Yeshua has a very specific meaning. It means Yahweh saves. Does the word Jesus mean to that, that to you? If not, I suggest getting familiar with his real name, Yahshua, because his real name is ultimately tied to the Father, Yahweh, in his aspect as the Messiah, the saving presence of God. Excuse me. I'll take a sip of water. So you can see, there is a lot of study going into this subject. And a lot of people have written excellent treatises on the subject. There is indeed something about the name Jesus. I addressed this point in the introduction to this essay. And I have no desire to diminish the importance of the name Jesus. I merely wish to acquaint you with the true origins of this name. Even with the reverence for the name, for most people, Jesus merely represents an emotional experience. A giddy, oh, hold on, the text is not moving for me. Let's try a different way. A giddy high that may last a few years, but when the brass tacks of obedience to Yah's law and the full impact of Yahshua's sacrifice sink in, that giddy high is seen to be an illusion. Christianity, first and foremost, is a responsibility to one's sacrifice, to one's brethren. Do all of the Christians sitting in the 20,000-seat auditoriums, listening to the gospel of self-help, through milk toast preachers, come away with a sense of greater responsibility to love and respect their brethren? True Christianity is the gospel of tough love. We must demand that we love each other by obeying Yahweh's law, just as Deuteronomy 27 and 28 state, we cannot hold each other to any lower standard. Anything short of this is mediocre religion, and boy, do we have loads of mediocrity. It has been objected that Jesus himself never used the name of Yahweh. This is not exactly true. There are a few instances in which he did. 
We have to bear in mind that the Masoretes and other translators have done their level best to obscure the sacred names. So before I quote the relevant New Testament passages, I would like to quote from the introduction of Joseph Rotherham's translation of the Bible. Under the heading of the name suppressed, he tells us, quote, The Tetragrammaton is nearly hidden in our public English versions. Not quite. To those who can note the difference between L-O-R-D in all in caps and L-O-R-D in low, lowercase and between G-O-D all caps and G-O-D lowercase, and can remember that the former printed with small capitals do while the latter do not stand for the name, of course the name being Yahweh, to such an intimation of the difference is conveyed, but although the reader who looks carefully at this book can see the distinction, yet the mere hearer remains completely in the dark respecting it, inasmuch as there is no difference whatever in the sound between capital L-O-R-D and lowercase l-o-r-d, or capital g-o-d and lowercase g-o-d, it hence follows that in nearly all the occurrences of the name, some 7,000 throughout the Old Testament, the especial name of God is absolutely withheld from all who simply hear the Bible read. Nearly all, for there are about half a dozen instances in the A.V., the authorized version, which is the King James Version, and a few more in the RV, the revised version, in which this concealment does not take place. In other words, there are these very few places in which the Tetragrammaton appears as Jehovah, and although it may be asked, why, what are they among so many, still their presence has an argumentative value. If it was wrong to unveil Tetragrammaton at all, then why do it in these instances? as we pointed out, it's Exodus 3, 14 and 15, and other places. If, on the other hand, it was right to let it be seen in these cases, then why not at all? With the exceptions explained, however, it remains true to say that in our public versions, the one special name of God is suppressed, wholly concealed from the listening ear, almost as completely hidden from the hastening or uncritical eye. So my answer to the question, why is the Tetragrammaton not found in the New Testament, is, it, is this. The question involves the religio-political environment created by the Pharisees. It involves a historical tampering that has occurred in the scriptures with a deliberate intent to obscure the sacred names, Yahweh and Yahshua. Those who have deleted it from the Old Testament would surely work feverishly to delete it from the New Testament, and they have succeeded. Nevertheless, let us take a look at a couple of instances in which the I am occurs in the New Testament. And uh, we don't have much time. In the 8th chapter of John, the Jews accuse Jesus of having a devil after he tells them that they are not, not of God. Now we know thou hast a devil, they say. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou say, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews to him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and you hast seen Abraham? 
Jesus said unto them, Very verily I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the admonition. See you all next time. Bye-bye.